Hi, and welcome to Serenity in Leadership's series on leading responsibly with integrity and purpose. A series dedicated to conversations with people who are shining examples of this kind of leadership. I'm Tom Dennis, and today I'm honored and delighted to welcome Sally Penny, MBE. She's a high-profile, award-winning barrister, as well as joint vice chair of the Association of Women Barristers. She's also the founder of Women in the Law UK and hosts the remarkable podcast, Talking Law. Sally sits as non-executive director on a variety of boards, bringing her experience and expertise in many areas, including governance, employment law, and cybersecurity. She's a keen fundraiser, supporting numerous local and national charities, a patron, diversity leader, radio broadcaster, and contributor, and as she puts it, most importantly, a proud mother of three. Yeah. Welcome, Sally. It's wonderful um, to have you here. Thank you, uh, Tom. That was a, a, an amazing introduction, uh, but uh, I'm, I'm just a dog owner and a mother. That's why I always try and say. <laughs> thank you for inviting me. This is a really great podcast. I've listened to quite a few of your guests on here, so I'm honoured to be amongst them. Oh, well... I'm delighted you're here. So, but I, I have so many questions to ask you because you're involved in so many fascin fascinating roles and projects. And of course, because International Women's Day is this week. So let's let's get stuck in. Great. Um, you champion a wide range of diversity-related initiatives from disability, gender, sexuality, and racial cases. Indeed, you were awarded an MBE for services to diversity in the workplace, social mo mobility and law. So for you, what is at the crux of how we, we can empower people to be a catalyst for positive change? Well, you know, it's a, it's a very good question, really. And when you, when you put it like that, I suppose it's um, having a purpose which would be inclusive or um, inclu you know, in including of all. And when we talk about diversity now, I've noticed people use the words belonging um, and that sense of making sure the different protected characteristics belong. So for me, I, th I think I would probably say it it's the cruxes, having a purpose to care um, about these issues, not so just so they don't end up in the, you know, in the courts where I appear, acting for an organisation or indeed for the individuals. But the, the truth is, it, it requires all of us to have a purpose and a purpose to actually have a culture which is inclusive and inclusion. You know, you can have diversity, but if you don't have, and I'm conscious that leadership is, is your bag, so I don't want to stray, stray into your territory, Tom. But, you know, I know what you do and what you do very well. But if you don't have leaders with purpose who can embed the things I care about, um, then it's completely pointless. And you have cultures which simply don't work. I mean, we see it in law all the time. Law firms merge and the culture is appalling. And then you lose half the staff. And the people say, oh, I thought they would have loved it here. You say, well, you've not done anything at all about purposeful leadership or culture or in fact just leading from the top and being an example setter so for me it has been about a purpose for better inclusion um and better inclusion with those with protected characteristics and as you rightly pointed out it, it is varied and is broad and but i'm quite keen to make sure that we deal with the intersectional issues mm. um 
you know, um, somebody who is Jewish and it is protected characteristics as religious grounds can also um, be from the LGBTQ plus community. And we often don't talk about those intersectionalities, you know, mm. in respect of gender, somebody who, um, you know, who is a black woman also can be queer or whatever it is. And neurodiverse people often don't feel that they are included in the workplace simply because they sometimes feel as though the optics um, we deal with the optical diversities in the workplace and mm. perhaps we forget them. And I don't say that I necessarily agree with all of that, but the reality is not all disabilities, for example, are visible. Um, mm. You know, not every disabled, but we know neurodivergence often don't display anything physical at all. Mm. Uh, and they're just as equal and should belong in the workplace. So, yeah, it's per I would say purpose um, yeah. to answer your question. Yeah, it's interesting you 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 mentioned the word belonging because I, I I think more and more I'm seeing that as a I'm I'm, I'm recognizing it as, as as a fundamental driver. People yes. need to belong, and that drives them. It drives them positively and it drives them negatively. And 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 it 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 often drives people to exclude. Yes. So it's a it's a challenge that, that you know we have to enable people to feel that they belong and that there is a wider world in which they can belong to. Yes, yes, um, yeah. You've summarised that beautifully, actually. <laughs> <laughs> not just you know, not just in the workplace, but but you're right. You're right. That wider world concept um, yeah. and the, and belonging, of course, plays so much into you know imposter syndrome. That feeling as though, you know, the imposter there, the imposter because you don't belong or you feel as though other people in the workplace or whatever the environment is, don't think you belong. Because sometimes I think the, the that whole imposter syndrome isn't often necessarily about you. It's about you thinking what other people think about you. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Uh, in there where the one belongs yeah sorry I, i'm sort of going on a slight digression there but it's quite interesting when you phrased it in that way well that's that's what these uh that's what these interviews are about is sort of uh <laughs> build, building on what we, we sort of both think about um you you motivate and inspire so many people and on your website you give examples of who inspires you which i i loved when i saw that who, who really stands out for you the most uh, and why um, well, you know, that is a big question, and I know we haven't got longer than uh, these interviews to go through all of them, but I, I wanted just to give a, a, a small example. So there are a few people, and I suppose if I had to sort of pick one, I would probably say Nelson Mandela. I know the late Nelson Mandela, um, president of South Africa. And his story is so powerful because, of course, he trained as a lawyer. Lots of people don't know that. Uh, you know, I have no interest at all in politics i should display that now because i know the uk is a trodden path but apart from voting absolutely no interest in, in politics but his he inspires me because his whole journey is so powerful you know from having been incarcerated for so long and then to be released and then have i suppose forgiveness even mm. um for perpetrators or whatever and then to be elected to govern a country and then put kind of that whole sense of, um, I suppose, I don't know, even a hatred for apartheid behind 
and then lead a nation, lead a rainbow nation of two people. I, I really find that, um, you know, sometimes when I give interviews, people ask, you know, if you could have a fictional di dinner party, who would be the leaders you would invite? And I always name him. I used to always say the Queen, and of course, Her Majesty's also um, uh, passed. But um, I would say Nelson Mandela, but perhaps you could indulge me in perhaps two more people if I, if I can. <laughs> just very quickly, just very quickly. Um, but um, well, one of the other people um, that I thought, uh, and I've often thought about this, the recent and uh, president of New Zealand, Jacinda Ardern, mm. who of course has stepped down. And, you know, I don't care what's going on in New Zealand. She may be popular, she may not. I don't know. You know, people comment all the time whenever... I share anything about her, but she's really taught us this whole, not because of agenda, but another way of leading. I don't know what you think, Tom, but, you know, being your whole self, saying when you're tired, you know, hugging. I always remember when the atrocity happened and it was a terrorist atrocity. Um, I can't remember whether it was Christchurch, where it was in New Zealand, but, mm. she, you know, she wore a, a headscarf or a hijab and hugged these families, you know, and she has been open about kindness and empathy. And we hadn't really seen that before. Mm. It was tended to be quite sort of alpha leadership and, um, you know, well, and, and sometimes, you know, if we go to gender, I know it's International Women's Day, you know, women can often be described as, you know, a bit soft. And some women leaders have acted like men just to get through the system. Mm. Um, and I thought that actually, by way of inspiration, um, she was excellent. And she, she taught us a lot about not just leadership, but sort of a new way of being and a new way of trying to inspire people, a new way of connecting hmm. with communities, you know, because she was even making videos for like LinkedIn. She went to a couple of pride marches or whatever, Black Lives Matter, all of that. So um, I didn't want to just stick to um, Nelson Mandela and I know he's no longer with us, but I, I do admire Jacinda Ardern and I inspire her and I inspire her, you know, I admire her bravery to say, actually, I've got yeah. nothing left. Yeah. And yeah. I, I think often, you know, um, we don't often do that in such a public scenario. Um, or, you know, I'm burnt out. I've given it. And it's nothing to do with can women hack it. I, I think part of the bravery in leadership is knowing when to say. Enough. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Or time to move on mm. or whatever the sayings are. You've probably got some clever coaching that you do, um, Tom, to help lead us through this, those periods, maybe, I don't know, of transition. I don't know how, how it transpires in sort of, in the business world, but I think that's quite brave to finally go. Yeah, enough think, is enough, or it's time yeah. to go. I think she showed enormous courage in doing that, and um, all the naysayers and all they came up with it, uh, sort of criticizing her and uh, and sort of trying to second guess. When actually, I think she just was being really honest and saying that is enough. I need to move yes. on. And I, I'm always reminded by Charles Handy's book. Um, so years ago, which asked the question, "What is enough?" Yes, and and uh, you know you can apply that so well. You know we've we've just had um, Bernie Sanders in this country, and you know he yeah. was interviewed so many times. But uh, you know one of the fundamental questions he he kept sort of um, asking in indirectly is, "What is enough?" Mm -hmm. And uh, th th there's so many people who are driven to have more 
because they've got no concept of what enough is and I, so i think that that we, we live in a, a society where that's very very challenged but it's interesting you you chose Jacinda Ardern because I, I remember when we first met yeah. um uh it was at a a, a, a conference in, in London and I remember the keynote speaker was Sophie the Duchess Duchess of of Wessex yes and it it one of the things that absolutely struck me about her speech which I thought was inspirational she was the only person all day who mentioned the word love Mm. Mm. Uh, in in the context of how people lead yes and that's really stuck with me that it's like we and you know almost I, I i'm almost frightened to say because people are going to say oh he's so flaky because i'm just talking about love and yet that is such an important driver and we cast it aside um to the detriment of everybody yes yes and of yeah. course nelson mandela was the same in a sense because he came from a place of love he couldn't mm. you couldn't have done what he did without doing that yeah yeah and so hard i mean you know yeah you've got to i think he must have loved his country and his people whatever but you have he did and one has to love i i, I guess and i don't think it's flaky i think it's actually saying um you know we don't use the word love i think we've stopped using it and applying it um even to the workplace mm. you know there was a time where we used to say didn't we if you didn't um you know you've got to love what you do and if you're not loving it then you've got to stop i mean mm. i don't want people to quit their jobs but do you know what i mean if yeah. everything is becoming you know a bit of a hassle um and you're not actually love, you know, you're not sensing the love. And as I say, you know, you clever coaches and exec coaches, you know what you're doing. But if that's not coming through in a workplace, then it might be time for a change or a different role or a, a different type of style um, there. So, yeah, I think it's important. So true. So you did a TED Talks. <laughs> you did a TED Talk on how love can conquer hate. And you obviously work with a lot of vulnerable people. Can you share any anecdotes about how you have seen love conquer hate? Yes, I can. Well, I can't say much in the court process, but I can say a lot about some other um, uh, uh, ways. You know, often in the court system, um, you know, everybody is vulnerable. I was asked this question recently um, when I went on Newsnight, and we were just talking about the implementation of, you know, the meters, the heating meters because mm. of the energy company. Yeah, and right. Uh, and there's supposed to be an exemption for those who are um, uh, vulnerable. And the whole issue arose from an undercover reporting, I think, by a journalist. I forget the newspaper. But everybody is vulnerable if they can't afford their bills. And the way we treat them is, is so incredibly important. And in the court system, um, it's so important we treat them with love and care. Because where, albeit if they're victims or they are people who have been discriminated against or whatever the issue is, uh, in the justice system they've got to be treated with love because they're just recounting their experience and I think sometimes we forget that but one of the examples of love conquering hate if I may say so I'm glad you've mentioned my TED talk because I often wonder if people think it's flaky is that um, in the lockdown pandemic COVID-19 uh, in 2021 um, 
we were in a Euro finals, not the one that the women won and brought home. I've got to say that. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, <laughs> the men, the men got to the final, the, the finals. And to be fair, we were robbed, in my view, by the Italians. Um, so I hope your Italian watchers won't be uh, moaning now. But um, three young men who all happened to be black. One was mixed heritage. Uh, Marcus Rashford being one of them missed the penalties, and so mm. we didn't win at all. I don't know if you remember that. And I remember watching one of my children, the middle one, is a very keen footballer. We all watched it because there was nothing else to do in you know in a lot of the period in lockdown. And I thought those boys would come home the next day. There will be buses just to celebrate that the first time in what sixty years or whatever we'd got to a final, and there wasn't. It was just filled with hatred. Mm. And not too far from where I live, um, there's a mural of Marcus Rashford, who's the Man United footballer, who's very young, but has used his platform for other means. So, you know, you know, he's been campaigning against food poverty and food banks has donated a lot of money. He's done quite a lot of positive stuff. And, you know, what we would say... um, uh, CSR type issues. He doesn't have to. He can just buy 20 cars like all the footballers seem to um, and houses for their mothers. But he doesn't. He's actually used his platform to write books and so on. And anyway, the mural was covered with racist abuse and it was very upsetting. And he received lots of online abuse um, because, you know, one of my specialisms is, is social um, uh, cybersecurity, cybercrime online, everywhere, all three of them, not just Marcus Rashford, wrote to Arsenal, people uh, for um, Saka. And I was really quite upset for them. Mm. But, and that was pure hate for, you know, uh, for their missing a penalty. But what happened, which really changed me, and it really motivated me to write a book, actually, by way of an- 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 anecdote, is that um, the mural, which was vandalised with the racist language um, graffitied across, was covered up by local people, national people, with messages of love, flowers, yellow mm. post-it notes, saying, you know, keep going, Marcus, because Marcus Rashford had, had grown up in this particular area um, and, you know, not the best of areas, and so it's a, it's a small tribute to him. But all the language was covered up by yeah. words and messages of love. And I found that, albeit that's an example I'm giving you out of the courtroom, you know, that was love conquering hate there was no sign of it and it was wonderful because you know we could take my children and say look racism effectively has been conquered by positivity from allies and you know when I went down there I actually didn't see very many brown faces it was mainly allies and what's now termed as you know anti-racist, you know, against all sorts of prejudice um, uh, in all guises. So that that example was really lovely. And then it, it motivated me to write a, you know, a book about black history. But that that's one example. The other example is sort of in criminal cases where um, I've seen restorative justice, you know, people who have been victims of the most appalling crimes. Sometimes it's actually dangerous driving, you know, joyriders, um, who have sadly killed um, a, a young person, for example, who's just out on their bike or whatever. And the families um, ha- have found a means to forgive them. And, mm. and I find that quite hard. I'm not sure that I would be able to do it myself, but I, I found that that is love conquering hate in a, in a system because, you know, in those scenarios, my, my role is just the advocate acting mm. for the family or for prosecuting the cases. Um, 
and and I've seen that and I think it's so powerful and on other occasions you know where victims of crime have met the perpetrators um to explain the effect of the offenses this is with my criminal law head on yeah. uh, and I think that has been quite quite um uh powerful where you know seeing love in action I, I you know in a different way but there's got to be love there otherwise there's no gain do you know what I mean it, yeah. it, you know it's a different form so I've, I've seen it in those those um different ways one of the things that really strikes me about that is when the media report it they they seem to not be able to comprehend that this could possibly happen yes and that's yeah. sad in and of itself yeah um because yes it, it is you I, I don't think you you can know how you would react un, un, mm. until you you're you're in that situation and you know uh, hopefully one never is yeah but, yes but uh, you know in 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 some ways these things can bring out the, the best yeah um you never know you never know <laughs> yeah and ex unexpectedly <laughs> So I've been reading your articles you've just been putting out on uh, LinkedIn, um, and you work in many areas of law, including employment law. Um, yes. What, what do you see as the trends in leadership today, um, both good and bad? And I know you were really reflecting on working from home and how um, you, you were looking particularly at law firms, but all all firms are having this, this real challenge about... Um, I want to restore things back to what I know and I understand. Whereas the people who are working for you are saying, I, I've had time to think and, and I don't want it to be the yes. same as it always was. Yes. Well, <laughs> yeah. Um, you've hit the nail on the head. So the first thing is hybrid working. <laughs> I must have this conversation so regularly, you know, with the senior leadership saying, we can't get people to come back to the office, right? And it's not just, you're right, it's not just law firms, but um, with the, sort of my women in the law hat on. And yeah, they're saying, well, we don't want to go back to how it was. Uh, you know, and they say, well, how do we get them back? Is it is it puppy days? Is it parties? Is it Zumba in the basement is a gym membership i mean my husband who's never been a member of a gym suddenly <laughs> yeah has been offered a gym membership so he's asking me you're a member of a gym where are the good gyms you know but i'm saying are you actually going to go it's a complete waste of money <laughs> you know and so i mean the the by way of that's just by way of example but you know trend number one is getting people back into the office but what for you know what? What's happened is a revolution um, in in the pandemic, hasn't it? So not just support staff, but you know the the fee, the billable staff, as I often will call them, in organisation, the senior leadership who are saying, "Yeah, let's come." But then everybody else is saying, "I don't want to sit for two hours to come in an office." Yeah. Um, and then the second thing is this, and and I think this is uh, the three things really. The second, so the first thing is hybrid work, and the second thing is culture, because what was the culture like before? So you mm. might have worked somewhere and, and these have been, it is a trend because suddenly people are saying, well, yeah, you've sent me a cheese package and you want me to do some sort of, you know, team bonding, but what are you actually doing about sustainability and, you know, climate crisis, right? Mm. What are you doing? What, what's our culture? What is the culture of our business um, going on? And can you tell me please? And so I'm not quite keen on coming in because uh, I'm quite happy doing 
you know, most most organizations are three days in, two out. A lot are not. A lot are the other way around, two, threes. Um, and the third trend that I've noticed in, in these articles is about leadership. What are the leaders in the organizations doing? Because often the leaders are saying, well, we're in, we're in, where's everybody else? And you say, well, okay, but what's your leadership style? And who are you getting in? And if you're in, are we going to actually reward presenteeism and um, not appraise absenteeism? Because it's not really absenteeism, is it? Because there's still flexible working, hybrid working. So there's some of the trends. And then the fourth thing, if you can just indulge me, is burnout. Because Gen Z is saying, yeah, isn't it great working from home? We don't have the commute, blah, blah, blah. But they're burning out because they don't seem to log off. Yeah. The systems that they're working on or whatever the working patterns are, not just Gen Z, but generally. Now, that's got two issues. One, the um, flexible working, childcare costs, those whole issues which are still going on in the gender space. And I know it's an International Women's Day, so I've got to cover that, if you like. But those those women who are effectively part-time workers on the three days are tending to do five days and being mm-hmm. paid for three, right? Mm-hmm. Which is something that, uh, you know, from my employment uh, practice head on, not a big fan of. Um, but if it works, it works. But employers have got to reward that properly and not demand attendance inside. So that's the first thing. The second thing is this issue of burnout and the well-being. Happier workers and those looking after their wellness are more productive. So... Actually, what are we doing? So if you're asking them, because, you know, lots of firms and businesses say it's a real problem getting talent and uh, we can't recruit the best talent. It's not just because of Brexit and, you know, strawberry pickers. We're all be, you know, eating our own green strawberries now because there's nobody to pick them to import them or whatever. It's not just those issues. The talent and the quality of talent in the economy is saying, actually, I'm not sure I want to work, as you rightly pointed out, Tom, as I did before. And if I'm going to work, I want to know what leadership is going to be, what the culture is going to be, and are you going to be agile and flexible and respect my well-being? So there have been really interesting spaces, and I noticed loads of people have been getting in contact with me. I'm afraid I haven't replied um, uh, because I've been in court, but about it you know leaders who are saying oh my god you're spot on about these trends it's happening in my sector as well how are we going to deal with it and maybe just let me say this in those trends i think one of the ways are we need to actually pay for exec coaches like you tom who actually know what they're doing they don't have to be set as specific but in you know in the legal space where i am we need to actually get people in from outside the sector, you know, in the legal space. We love people who are ex-lawyers, who are coaches and trainers and whatever they're doing, yeah, in the exec seats. We love those. Actually, I think we need people who have come from different sectors to bring the learnings in for us to learn from. Um, And I think that would be a really useful thing. And conversely, in the business space, they need to be saying, you know, who have we used coaches or exec coaches or whatever before? Have we looked at our culture? Let's get some specialists in. And I'm sorry that sounds a bit sort of 
pedantic, but you know, I'm an expert in my field, so are you. So I'm not going to skimp around the corners. And I think profitable businesses, you know, we know diversity works. So use more diverse experts, I think, in addressing these problems. Because I don't think the I don't know what you think. I don't think the answers are very simple, actually, or straightforward. They they often are. It's um for many reasons. I think just being an external, you can actually say things that somebody from Winside simply couldn't say. Yes. Uh, you just, they, they don't have the permission. Um, and, it, you know, if you look at around at the sports world or the, the, the music world, you know, or you, you, you'll never see a, a concert pianist who doesn't have some sort of coach. Yes. You know, you know, they practice, they rehearse, they practice, but there's someone who's, watching their style and listening to them same in sports um and, and i think it's it's a little odd really that we we look at people at the top of organizations and say well shouldn't you be doing the same um yeah. what what who's what is there that's telling you whether you're on your game or not yes yes um so i, I think it's it's quite a powerful argument there's one thing that in terms of change and challenges for leaders that um has come up quite recently, and I don't know whether you, you've come across sort of conversations about that, and, and that's the four-day week. You know, the experiments that they had in the West Country have come out so positively, I mean, extraordinarily positively. And yes. I, I, can, I can just see so many sort of leaders saying, you know, I've got, I've got a deal for working, for, and now they don't want to come in. That I've got to pay them the same amount, and they're only going to work four days a week. Uh, but... but <laughs> You know, it, it, you've got to go back to 1926 or 29, I can't remember, when Henry Ford oh, reduced yeah. the working week from six days to five with the same amount of pay. And it's like we had to wait almost a century for someone yeah. to think, well, maybe we could extend this. <laughs> yes, yes. I mean, it, it is extraordinary, isn't it? Because I can't see people go, oh, God. It's even a lesser week. How are we going to fit in? And as I said before, you know, working mothers and fathers have been doing it for yonks, you know, having the gratitude tax and be working for, you know, all those days and be paid for less. So why don't we all do it? So I see the conflict, but the well-being aspect of them was so good that, mm. you know, I mean, we're in an obesity crisis, um, quite frankly, if you look at all the health benefits. Yes. One day less, nobody's going to be sitting on their backsides, aren't they? The reality is they're probably going to be working some of it. But if we can get people walking in the countryside or whatever, great, bonus, and then they get back to work. Why not? If people want to brew beer, why not? Triathlons, you know, I'm doing this walk every day for prostate cancer, which affects, you know, uh, a man every 40 minutes, which is an astounding, horrible figure. Yes. Um, but... If people are doing that, so what? Fine. But but it's an interesting, and I really think we have to embrace the changes, albeit screaming and kicking, yeah. um, and look at productivity. Um, exactly. You know, exactly. Um, yeah. So uh, um, the theme for International Women's Day this year is embrace equity. Yes, we have to do this sign, I think, embracing That's right. I know. We need to do more. Well, I need to do more yoga. <laughs> um, so how important is it for men to be involved as allies for women and are you seeing progress in this area how can we enroll men in a conversation when the likes of andrew tate even if he's still in in prison are being so influential and undermining equity if you think they are yeah. of course yes 
Yeah, it's a great question. You know, and it's a big question, um, Tom, because um, firstly, um, you know, crucial um, men are crucial to this whole conversation about embracing equity uh, and male allies. You know, we can't just be talking to what can feel like an echo chamber. And I say that as somebody who set up, you know, a professional development organization, Women in the Law UK, we need to engage men. And we've got male members who are saying, you know, how can we assist with certain areas? How can we assist with retention and so on? So crucial. And the the whole issue of Andrew Tate is very worrying for all of us, not just with my legal head on, but the thought of, you know, my sons or your children, all our children um, who see professional mums and dads or two mums, two dads, whatever the family setup is, then accepting the words of somebody, you know, contrary to all of the progress that we've made is astounding and worrying in every way. I mean, I don't say silencing him is the answer. That's a different thing. I think we need to have the conversations about what's going on in our society. And is there a perception maybe by our young people, particularly our young men, thinking, oh, we are now sidelined or, you know, we're being secluded somehow and this chap is speaking sense because actually the statistics don't say that things are so great um, for um, women. And whilst we talk about a lot of these gender issues, the reality is quite far and few between, you know, uh, uh, far and few uh, between. And, and actually the whole Andrew Tate has made, certainly for me, made me think when we're often talking about talking to girls about career progression role models and so on i think we need to be talking to boys i think we need to be talking to young men i think we need to be talking about you know role modeling gender issues you know my career your career uh you know and seeing you know women in all guises and that it's not perfect but we need them to be on the conversation and mm. particularly younger men so i think perhaps that's probably what's happened and it's created a void for the andrew tate and there are others mm. um types to be having a conversation about the exclusion of men or, or so on and so forth and actually toxic masculinity this idea that you know all men want to be on a bike cycling in um, Lycra, it's just nonsense. Or all boys want to play golf, it's just nonsense. You know, there's a whole issue about toxic masculinity, um, which are very different and it's a generational thing. So I think we need to bring the conversations back down because it is a difficult one that this has happened and it has such a huge, huge following in so many ways. That I think we need to be having more conversations with our women with our boys, with our sons, with our nephews and with our friends' sons who may not be having the direct conversations with us. Yeah, it, it is a huge subject, this. And it's something that I'm experimenting with now with uh, some organisations is is going in and talking to them about having men's groups, um, not to exclude women, but to uh, just for, uh, as a first step to allow men a safe space where they can talk about all the things that society has told them they're not allowed to talk about. Yes. Um, yeah. Because we are so lacking in role models today. Yes. That actually, I think there's there's more of a, a responsibility that's falling on the corporate world to to understand that whether they like it or not, they are role models. Yeah. You know, leaders in organizations are role models and they need to, to sort of 
take up the cudgel and 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 speak from a a genuine masculine place yeah yes um, and then you know once we've sort of started to do that then we can bring men and women together and they can listen to each other because that's just yeah. something that isn't happening at all yes I'm, yes I'm, i feel pretty passionate about it <laughs> yeah i think you're spot on and i think i think do it because then you can also then build on it because there is of course the other side of the spectrum which is you know men who've married these women in obviously heterosexual relationships and then the women are suddenly going through the menopause and the men are a bit like what's this hang yes. on what happened to the woman that I, you know and yes. how is this affecting me the woman that i've married all these years has suddenly changed and has become a different person both physically and emotionally and so on yes. and they don't know how to deal with that no. we're not talking about that no. actually as well and no. because um on a bit of i don't want to bring us down but we know male suicide is rife mm -hmm. you know yeah. you you i was doing some fundraising in lockdown uh because i was so shocked by the statistics so yeah. you know and as a mother of, of of sons you know i have two sons and a daughter um it's really important so i think you should be doing that i think we should be going into corporates and saying yeah. actually your role models and what are you doing about the conversations mm -hmm. um to work so yeah keep me posted on that i love I, the idea of that I, I shall so sally we're running out of time um okay just just to finish off can you give us two of your top tips based on the evidence you've seen through your work on how to improve workplace culture um oh gosh top tips wow well i think you're the clever person out of us so the first thing i think is we need to have a, a desire to have conversations about culture. You can't do that if people are just saying, you know, behind each other's backs as a group, you know, group think, oh, we think we're all right. We think we're OK. But actually, mm -hmm. nobody's having a conversation about whatever the issues are, microaggressions, hair discrimination, whatever, cycling, mm -hmm. whatever. So I think we need to have conversations. And then the second thing then, of course, and I am, I would say this, wouldn't I? deeds not words you know we had a brief conversation before about the suffragette film didn't we mm. um before we started recording and you know emmeline pankhurst where i am in manchester and i know i'll go to london too but um you know deeds not words is really important to follow up it's mm. no good just having talking shops all the time which i've seen in a lot of organizations yeah. you know or you you get some papers you know in an employment case where there was a conversation about doing something you know you think oh gosh that feels like it was 1987 but you know we've got to act upon it if we say we're going to do something we want to do mm. something it's no good just having tick boxes um about culture let's actually embed ask this stuff what would be great for the culture what's working and what's not and do we actually want to change it you know and using kind of you know the profit margins because sometimes it feels a bit like these are all niceties mm. um you know uh sometimes in organizations and, and i don't think they are i think we really got to invest in the things we've learned especially post-pandemic um mm. so i would say those start with conversations but these not words um and embrace equity which gets me back to your international women's day um <laughs> scenario sally thank you thank you thank you oh, um, to just wonderful. to just to finish your your um your walking for charity for for the prostate cancer Thing. I mean, what's if somebody has watched this and feels like they'd like to support you? How do they do that? 
Um, I think you just type in my name or type in just giving and it's um Sally with a Y, Penny with an I. Um, I, or they can follow me on LinkedIn and uh, I'm just constantly following it. So it's 11,000 steps. Although, you know, I walk a, walk a fair bit with the dog before I go to court. And then, you know, by the time you go to London, it's beating that. And it all goes to prostate cancer charity. Fantastic. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much. It's been really super um, to, to to speak with you and to hear your experience and your ideas and your thoughts. Oh, really, wonderful. really appreciate it. Yeah. Not at you. all. Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> all right. Well, take care and all all the, your good wishes for International Women's Day and on into into the year. Brilliant. Thank you. And thank you for being a great ally, Tom. It's really good. And we need senior men like you and role models and experienced leaders to really um, push forward um, whatever the agendas are, particularly in this space, whether it's leadership or culture uh, in the main, but also on diversity. Thank you. Mm -hmm.